what we're trying to do is we're trying to apply what we know about vision to creating a device that can take information from a camera and stick it into the visual system so that a blind person can see with the camera in a very similar way or the same way that they see with their real eyes when they're not blind. to Brain Science, the podcast where we explore how recent discoveries in neuroscience are unraveling the mystery of how our brain makes us human. I'm your host, Dr. Ginger Campbell, and this is episode 166. You can get complete show notes and episode transcripts on my website at brainsciencepodcast.com. You can send me feedback at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com voice feedback via speakpipe.com forward slash Doc Artemis. And you can post feedback on the Brain Science Podcast fan page on Facebook. Today's guest, neuroscientist Stephen Macknick, has spent his career studying vision. And today he will be telling us about a new approach to creating a visual prosthesis. The key difference in the approach he will describe is that it does not involve using electrodes, but rather takes advantage of new discoveries as well as techniques such as optogenetics. Today's episode is rather technical, so I want to give you a little background information before we jump into the interview. Early on, Dr. Macknick talks about the fovea, which is the tiny part of our retina where acute vision occurs. All the signals from the retina, including the fovea, travel via the optic nerve to the part of the brain called the thalamus. Almost all sensory information goes to the thalamus before it goes to the cortex. The particular area in the thalamus that processes visual information is called the lateral geniculate nucleus, or LGN for short. So whenever you hear Dr. Macknick refer to the LGN, just remember that he's talking about the thalamus, which is a deep brain structure. The other key idea is that information from the eyes is mapped in the thalamus retinotopically, which means that there is a spot in the LGN that matches each spot on the retina. This same retinotopic organization appears in the primary visual cortex. This is a key to trying to build a visual prosthesis. Brain science has a very diverse audience, and one advantage of increasing the show back to twice a month is that it will allow me to vary the technical level of the content. I think Dr. Macknick does a good job of making his work accessible to everyone. But if you are a non-scientist, I recommend focusing on the big picture. And don't forget, I'll be back after the interview to review the key ideas. So Steve, it is fantastic to have you back on Brain Science after all this time. I think the last time I saw you, you and Susanna had just moved to New York. That's right. Yeah. So how long have you been there now? We've been here about five and a half years now. Wow. So I didn't realize it was that long. You both have your own lab, right? That's correct. And we continue to collaborate a lot. But yes, we have our own independent laboratories. And how many kids have you got these days? We got three kids. Okay. I think when I first met you, Susanna was pregnant with your youngest. Uh-huh. Yep. That could be. Yeah. Nova. So that would have been nine years ago then. 
Well, anyway, it's good to get to talk to you. Before we start talking about your work that you're on working on right now, would you mind just giving my listeners sort of a background about why vision research has sort of a special place in neuroscience? I mean, it kind of, in some ways, is an iconic area of neuroscience. Yeah, so it has an important history in in neuroscience because neuroscience was, in a sense, officially born when the the neurobiology department at Harvard Medical School was formed. It was the first of the neurobiology departments. So as a field, it kind of got its name then. And of course, there were neuroscientists before then, for example, kind of the patron saint of neuroscience is Ramon y Cajal, Santiago Ramon y Cajal from Spain, who did some of the first very important anatomy and developed the neuronal doctrine that the idea that neurons did everything. And some of his most famous drawings are of the eye, though. I think eyes have always captured the interests of, of biologists, even going back to Darwin, whose major problem in kind of explaining how a body could evolve from nothing was to explain organs of perfection like the eye. And in fact, entire chapters and books are dedicated to this very question, how can you possibly evolve something so very specialized and perfect as an eyeball without design? So in biology itself, I think eyes have been of interest. In neuroscience, eyes have been of interest from the beginning. And in the very first neurobiology department, two of the central people in it were David Hubel and Torsten Weasel, who got the Nobel Prize for mapping the visual cortex and discovering several aspects about fundamental cortical processing. And, and the cortex is the part of the brain that's very special to, well, it's not special to humans, but it's in a sense, the most special thing about humans that makes them different in terms of their brain from other animals more than other parts of the brain. By developing the systems and methods they did to study the visual system, especially the primary visual cortex of the brain, they kind of laid the roadmap for how to study all pieces of cortex everywhere in the brain. And so visual systems neurophysiology has been the cornerstone of all cortical physiology and a lot of physiological measurements in the brain. It's been where a lot of the methods have come from. It's where a lot of the theories about computation have come from. And those computations aren't just visual. They're also used in auditory and other systems. So, so those systems and those studies borrow from what we learn in vision. It's the most important of our senses physiologically. And there's probably as much or more research to visual physiology and diseases at the NIH than any other aspect of brain science. I think for all of those reasons, from impact to methods to general scientific curiosity, all the way back to evolution, vision has played a central role in driving essentially scientific interest in how the brain works. And did you and Susanna do a postdoc at Harvard? Yes. I was a graduate student at Harvard Medical School with Mars Livingstone, and we both did postdocs with David Hubel at Harvard Medical School as well. When we were in his lab, it was just me, Susanna, and David for about five years or four and a half years before we got our first jobs and left. And so we were a very tight unit with David, and essentially we learned to think from him. <laughs> so now we're, you know, many years in the future, um, 
past where you're talking about. And in this paper that you shared with me that we're going to sort of talk about today, you're examining some new methods that are being used in non-human primates to study vision even in more detail. Would you just tell us a little bit about why this this is so important? Yeah. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to apply what we know about vision to creating a device that can take information from a camera and stick it into the visual system so that a blind person can see with the camera in a very similar way or the same way that they see with their real eyes when they're not blind. So that is the fundamental thrust of the project. Blindness is very common. About 3% of the world have damage or dysfunction in their fovea. And their fovea is the very central part of your visual field. If you hold out your thumb in front of you, your thumb up, and with your elbows straight, looking at your thumbnail, your thumbnail-sized piece of vision is just 0.1% of your visual field. It's about 1,200 square degrees of your visual field, and your thumbnail is roughly about one square degree. It's not precise, but that's more or less accurate. So you're talking about one one-thousandth of your visual field is that tiny little piece that's the size of your thumbnail, yet that's the only place in your entire visual field that you've ever really seen. It's the only place where you have 20-20 vision or have ever had 20-20 vision. It's the only place that matters when you put your glasses on. It's the only places that matters if you don't need glasses. And so this tiny piece of vision, which in the retina is called the fovea, and which for the rest of vision takes up virtually half of your visual processing neurons, is absolutely critical to vision. And that presents a problem, and it presents an opportunity. And the problem is that if you just damage this one little place, which is what happens in macular degeneration, and age-related macular degeneration is the most common form of blindness in senior citizens, it's the second most common form of blindness in the world, and foveal dysfunction in general from age-related macular degeneration and other forms of macular degeneration affects three to five percent of the world. There's nothing you can do about it. There is no way to fix this. So all of these people who have this, there's no ameliorative therapy except to try and use other types of vision and enhance peripheral vision. So the opportunity here is, well, this is a very tiny piece of the retina. It's a very tiny piece of the visual field that we make a lot of hay with in normal vision. Since we only need this tiny little piece for most of what we do for vision anyway, if we can just fix that one tiny piece, we should be able to take someone who's profoundly blind and actually give them an island of sparing in this area, and maybe they can really see well. And this actually happens when you have age-related macular degeneration. What typically happens is you often don't know you have it for a long time, especially if there's damage in the periphery, because your brain fills it in. And even when you're starting to get damage in your fovea, your vision gets worse, but you can often, if you have islands of sparing, you see pretty much okay. You don't need a cane and you can make a way around with, without extraordinary measures. So these islands of sparing are really important because as soon as you lose the last one, boom, now you're really very blind. Even though you might have 99% of your vision and the rest of your retina there, without this 0.1%, you're blind, legally blind and your quality of life is affected. You can't read, you can't drive, you can't see your grandchild's face. All of these things are what happens. The opportunity here is if we can just fix this one little piece or provide an island of sparing there, 
we could actually really improve the quality of life for a very large percentage of the people on the planet who have foveal problems. So that's what we set out to do. And the way we did this was to consider what we knew about the visual system. And this stems from a new discovery that, again, comes out of visual neuroscience and nowhere else. And it was kind of a joint discovery by the labs of Jose Manuel Alonso at State University of New York, a school of optometry in Manhattan, and also the laboratory of David Fitzpatrick, who is at the Max Planck Institute in Florida. They published two different papers in the same issue of Nature in 2016. And what they found was that the brain sends information from the eye into the brain in the optic nerves, and then that goes to a part of the thalamus, which is the object in the very center of the brain called the thalamus. And you can think of the thalamus as kind of a way station. It's where all the incoming information goes, a lot of the outgoing information goes, incoming information then goes there and it gets sent from the thalamus to the part of the cortex it needs to go to. And same is true in vision. So the optic nerves connect to the thalamus, a specific place called the LGN or lateral geniculate nucleus of the thalamus. And from there, that part of the thalamus projects neurons into the cortex. Now, what's interesting in the visual system is that the organization of this information is maintained in the same way it's maintained in the retina. If you think about what the retina does, the retina is basically a camera lucida reading device. So your eyeball, think of it as a black box with a hole in it, and light comes in the hole and there's a lens, but even if you took out the lens, if you just put light through a pupil in a camera lucida, you'll get an image on the back of the wall if the hole's small enough. With a big pupil you, and a lens, you can get the same thing. You can focus an image, an optical image of the world onto the back of the eye, and you have a photosensitive sheet of neurons there called photoreceptors that actually takes that light and transduce it into electrochemical signals, and that's what goes into the brain. But these neurons are related to each other in space in the same way that the visual world is laid out. So it's called a retinotopic organization, and it just means that objects in the world that are next to each other are close to each other on the retina and far away, they're far away. Essentially, it's a movie picture. The neurons of your retina are organized so that parts of the movie that are next to each other are next to each other, just like the elements in a camera will be, or that pieces of film in a camera will be. They're not scrambled, they're organized in a way that's easy to look at because that's the way the world's organized. Same in the brain. And that organization from layer to layer as you go into the brain, for the first several layers, it's retinotopically organized. So we can know if we're recording from a neuron in the LGN or a neuron in the cortex, that the neuron next door is going to be laid out in this image of the world in a pattern that makes sense and matches the incoming movie of the life of the person with the eyeball. This got us thinking, okay, so we, we already knew that there was this retinotopic organization, and, and we knew that for a long time, even before Hebel and Weasel's seminal work, talking about how the cortex was organized. We knew that the cortex was retinotopic. Marshall and Talbot discovered that many, many decades ago. So it's retinotopically organized, and what the Alonso and Fitzpatrick labs discovered was that it turns out the input from the LGN is not just retinotopically organized, but it's split for every point in space in the visual world, there's four different inputs. There's an on input and an off input. If you're looking at a star in the sky, the neurons in the on center of this point in the, of your retinal field that sees that star will be firing because it's a white spot on a black background. 
On the other hand, if you looked at a white sheet of paper with a period just typed in the middle of it and you looked at it with the same piece of retina, now the off channels would be lit up because it's a black spot on a white background. And these on cells and these off cells that see the basically the pixels of the world, they're compared to each other for you to determine how bright something is. And so the on and off channels antagonize each other so that you can get a really good signal to noise of the brightness of something and its contrast sign, whether it's dark or light. And you also have an on and off for each eye, one for the left eye and one for the right eye. These inputs from the LGN are laid out in a retinotopic map so that these four inputs, the on and the off for each eye, are laid out in about a square millimeter of cortex, and that many of these square millimeters of cortex make up the entire visual field. And these square millimeters of cortex, Hubel and Weasel called the hypercolumn. So now the bottom line is you've got one hypercolumn for every point in the visual field, and that explains everything the brain is going to see about that point in the visual field. Every single thing comes in in the form of either an on and the off for either the left or the right eye. And the brain takes that information and it builds from that everything you've ever seen later on. That's what the rest of the brain is for. So what Alonso and Fitzpatrick discovered was exactly how this on off left and right pattern is laid out with respect to each other as it comes into the brain. And everything else the brain does that Hubel and Weasel and other people have discovered, cells that see specific orientations of lines, cells that see motion in one direction versus the other, cells that see specific colors, cells that see faces, cells that see hands, cells that see nebulae in the space, cells that see everything that you possibly see. Ultimately, they get their information from this input from the LGN to the primary visual cortex, on, off, left or right, that's it. What I realized was that if we stimulated the on and the off, left and right, in a given hypercolumn, we could now replace all vision. We just have to do it for as many of those hypercolumns as we can, and we could actually theoretically do it from a camera, and if we did that, we would be able to replace vision and, and restore it as a neural prosthetic. And so my lab in Susana martinez Conde's lab and our teams started working on how is it we could possibly do that at this information choke point in vision to just stimulate on and off, left and right. So you are going to try to figure out how to reproduce the signal that should be coming out of the LGN, but it's missing in a person whose fovea doesn't work. Correct. That's exactly it. That's all there is to it. If we're able to do that, it will restore vision because that's what normal vision does. But of course, this is harder than it sounds. <laughs> You're not wrong. It is harder than it sounds. But I think that the general concept is not hard. It is just that simple. It's just that simple because as far as we know, each of these inputs, the on and the off and the left and right, I told you that these are organized in a piece of cortex that's a flat sheet of incoming inputs in layer four of the primary visual cortex. And it's a square millimeter. That's actually quite a large piece of cortex. So each one of these inputs, you can think of them as four quadrants of a square, on and off for the left eye, you can think of them on the left, they're 500 microns wide, and together, next to each other, they're one millimeter high. And then you've got the right eye would make a stripe of on and off on the right, one's on and one's off. 
So you put these together and it's a square millimeter. So now we have to figure out a way to stimulate just the on or the off of the left and or right in such a way that normal vision would do it the same way. I'm really excited that Text Expander will continue to support brain science throughout 2020. I want to take a moment to explain how Text Expander can unlock your productivity. Text Expander is an app that allows you to create snippets for just about anything you type frequently. When you create a snippet, you pick a short, easy-to-remember abbreviation that gets replaced automatically as you type. Text Expander is available for Mac, Windows, Chrome, iPhone, and iPad, and there is also a team version that allows you to share with others. Just visit textexpander.com forward slash podcast for 20% off your first year. That's textexpander.com forward slash podcast. And don't forget to tell them that you heard about it on Brain Science. How many neurons approximately is that that we're trying to stimulate? Okay, well... Or is that the wrong question? Well, it's the wrong question in a sense because basically you're trying to stimulate the inputs into V1. And from there, V1 takes that information and does with it whatever it would do in normal vision. So you don't have to, we're not really stimulating V1, we're stimulating the LGN. And each one of these inputs has, we think, approximately 25 inputs. So each of these on and off areas, it's not really well understood. I don't know if that's an accurate number, but it's the most accurate number we have right now. So if you look in the literature, people have asked, okay, how many on channels come to a given point in space. And this research that discovered the on and off channels for left and right eye is so new that no one's gone back in and done the research to ask, well, each one of these modules, how many cells are in there? But we know for a given point in space from earlier research, how many LGN cells impinge them on a given point in space. And it's about 25. That could be off by quite a bit, but it's about 25. So it's a relatively, it's not millions that we have to stimulate at every point. And in fact, the neurons that are projecting from the LGN into V1, it's actually just their connections, their boutons that come into V1. Their cell bodies are back in the middle of the brain. So it's just the inputs into V1. So how do we stimulate those cells so that they have the right pattern of information coming into V1 is the question. And the answer is, well, it turns out that all long distance connections in the brain are excitatory, they're glutamatergic. And so that is really helpful because one of the main problems with prosthetic devices that use electrodes, for example, is that you can't control what you're stimulating. You can control it by putting the electrode where you want it and you can control the size of the electrode. But once it's there, if there is, for example, a neuron that you're stimulating and its neighbor that happens to be an inhibitory neuron that inhibits that neuron, you're going to get a low signal to noise because you're stimulating both the neuron and the neuron that inhibits it. And so you're going to get really poor quality. And this is exactly what happens in retinal prosthetics that exist now. These are prosthetics that actually go in the eye. They have electrodes that go into the retina. And there's a camera face that sends information into this electrode array. And that electrode array stimulates the retina in a retinotopic pattern to give the person vision. But they have very, very poor contrast sensitivity it's less than 
And the reason that happens is because the electrodes are indiscriminate about what they're stimulating. They're stimulating the on cells, they're stimulating the off cells, they're stimulating the inhibitory cells, they're stimulating the excitatory cells, they're stimulating all of the support cells that are supposed to be not stimulated. They're stimulating the vessels, which are also sensitive to electrical charge. So all of these things are happening at the same time, and it can't be controlled very well. So you're not going to use electrodes. So how are you going to do it? Exactly. So the question is, how can we stimulate those inputs into V1 in the same way that normal vision does without stimulating all the inhibitory cells and support cells and vessels and all that stuff without using electrodes? And the answer is what we call optogenetics. And the idea is this. What we do is we go to the LGN in the middle of the brain and we use gene therapy to infect those cells with photoreceptors. So now we, the eyes are broken when we've given up on the eyes. Then we go into the LGN and we inject these photoreceptors into the LGN. They're actually the viruses that inject genes of the photoreceptors into the cell so that the cells now make their own photoreceptor molecules in their membranes and the cells become photoreceptors just like in the retina. Now you can stimulate those cells by shining light on them. So all we have to do is activate those LGN cells in the right pattern and it'll be exactly the same if we do it in the right pattern, it'll be exactly the same as if the eye did it in a person with normal vision. So that's now what we have to do. I'm going to break in here for just a moment to remind you that I produce brain science independently. And although I have some support for advertisers, it's listeners like you that make this show possible. There are several options for supporting the show, including Patreon, the premium subscription, and direct donations. Please go to brainsciencepodcast.com forward slash donations to learn more. I've recently updated the page to make it easier to choose the option that is best for your budget. And the trick is that we chose the LGN to do this because when they put their inputs in the primary visual cortex, they do it in this beautiful retinotopic pattern that we understand. And now we understand how those inputs are laid out in on and off and left and right. And those inputs are relatively big, meaning that it's something that we can actually target precisely with a video camera. So we now put a video camera over the visual cortex and we've got our now new photoreceptor LGN cells we can stimulate just their boutons, just the actual inputs into the primary visual cortex. They're now flight sensitive too, and they're laid out in a beautiful retinotopic map, and we can stimulate those with a video projector, and that video projector should stimulate those cells just like real visual inputs would. And now all we got to do is we got to take Let's say we want our patient to see a movie. Well, we play the movie on the video projector, but we computationally process the movie so that we're just stimulating at every given position in the retinotopic space, the on and the off and the left and the right eye in the same way that the real visual system would if the real eyes were looking at the same movie on a TV screen. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about how optogenetics works, because I know that's become a really important tool, and most of us outside the field don't really you know, know much about it. 
if I understand it, that was developed in smaller animals like mice and rats. And for them, they have really tiny brains. And when you're shining the light in their brain in whatever way you're doing it, it's technically a pretty small area. So in reading your paper, I got the impression that one of the big issues is our brains and primate brains are a lot bigger. Is that part of the technical issue? Yes. So there's a couple different issues related to optogenetics that we need to solve. And my favorite way to solve it is to let somebody else solve it and then lift what they did and do it so <laughs> we don't have to solve it. <laughs> so that's what we did. <laughs> so the basic idea is the primary visual cortex is the single biggest brain area in the cortex. It's very important to survivability. And so it's very large. The area of it is about the size of a credit card, which doesn't sound like much, but in the brain, that's quite large. All the other brain areas are smaller. Now, about half of that, maybe a third to a half of it, is actually all fovea. Even though the fovea is just one one thousandth of the retina, it's very large percentage of that primary visual cortex because that fovea is so important. There's a lot of resolution. You can think of it in terms of a camera. We have a lot of resolution in that, and it takes a lot of processing power. So we have a lot of cells dedicated to that. So what we want to do is be able to transfect into the cells of the LGN and a lot of them, these optogenetic channels. And typically that's done with small injections. And you do small injections because you don't want to break anything, right? So the idea is if you do a big injection, what happens just from a technical point of view is you stick a needle into the brain and you start pushing on your syringe or a motor pushing liquid through the syringe. And the solution comes out of the syringe into the brain and immediately hits resistance. And what happens is the physics takes over. And as you press and try and inject in, the solution you put in, if it's very high pressure and there's a lot of pushback from the brain, well, first off, it'll kill cells. And secondly, it will go where the point of least resistance is, which is right back up the shaft on the outside because you've just broken all the tissue as you put this needle in. So it comes right back out and it squirts up the sides of the injection needle. This is a problem that neurosurgeons and humans have had for a long time because they do a lot of injections, for example, into tumors or other places where they're trying to kill the tumor, for example. And so they developed a system called convection-enhanced delivery that previously had only been used subcortically. And the way it works is the injection needle actually has a step on it. So you can imagine a needle goes in and then a millimeter or so, or maybe several millimeters, depending on what exactly and where you're injecting, you have an actual step. So you can imagine the tube comes upwards and then it gets wider. If you go up the tube, up the sides, there's a flat step. So what happens now is if you inject a lot of pressure, the juice comes out of the tip of the tube, it goes back up the shaft because it builds up pressure in the brain itself, but then it hits the step and it flies out sideways and you end up having a very large bolus of injection and it doesn't come back out the brain, it stays in the brain, it just makes a big round ball of injection. This is called convection enhanced delivery. It creates a convection field and the size of the step, the size of the distance of the step, the width of the step and the pressure you use determines the size of your bolus of injection. And so our colleague 
Azada Yazdan Shamarad, who was then working in Flip Savies lab at UCSF. Flip Savies has gone on to run Elon Musk's new company. And Azada is now a professor at University of Washington. She said, well, what we need is to be able to do this in the cortex so that we can fill lots of cells at once and do optogenetics in lots of cells, not just very small, delicate injections. So long story short, she developed the methods to actually inject very, very large, multiple square centimeters of cortex evenly with any solution you want. And so we now have taken her methods and done this in the visual cortex and filled the visual cortex with genes that allow us to read out the neurons so we can see what they're doing when they're activated. And also we use the same method to fill the LGN with the optogenes necessary to do optogenetics and turn those cells into photoreceptors. So yes, one of the main concerns is technically difficult of how to fill lots of neurons safely. And Azada basically taught us how. Since there's so many techniques mentioned in your paper, obviously we don't have time to talk about them all. What do you think is the most important? Do you want to talk about the piece that you've developed and, and how it fits in? Yeah. So I, there's a couple different technical problems. One is, can we inject all the cells and get them injected? That's Azada more or less had solved that problem in different parts of the brain before us. And so we used her techniques and it worked great. Then one of the problems is what we call scatter. Now, I told you that the part of the brain that we need to be able to stimulate in order to have a prosthetic system that restores acuity at the highest attainable level, we need to be able to inject each of these on and off channels in a given hypercolumn in each eye, independently of each other. Because if we don't, if we stimulate both the on and the off channel at the same time, we're going to get gray and we're going to get low contrast and it's not going to be as good as normal vision. If it spreads the other way and it crosses the two eyes, we can't have stereo vision potentially. If we mix the two eyes, we'll just have monovision. So what we want to be able to do is stimulate a 500 by 500 micron area of cortex with light from the cortex with our video projector in a way that it doesn't spread to unwanted targets. That's what we have been testing, whether we can even do that. And so what we've been doing is we developed the methods for actually doing this in monkeys. So there's a special chamber for being able to do these types of recordings that took us quite a long time to build. It's not very interesting to the public. It's more of an engineering scientific feat specific for optimizing primate research. And then what we've been working on recently that's been tricky has been to actually be able to stimulate just the part of the LGN that we want and not the other. The big problem here is that the inputs are in layer four of the cortex, which is a millimeter down, which means people have seen pictures of brains, at least in photographs, and they're pink. That means they're not truly transparent. They're pink because it's a bunch of transparent cells, but it's filled with blood. And also, they're not glassy transparent. Even if they take all the blood out, they're gray. You can't see through them. They scatter light. And they're going to scatter our video projectors light too, even a millimeter down. And so one of the main technological problems was, can we actually isolate our stimulation to a 500 by 500 micron spot, one millimeter down? What we've been working on is how small can we control it? And can we put out, for example, a panel of LEDs on the surface of the cortex, that now being our video projector, and actually isolate the stimulation 
of the different on and off left and right inputs for a given point in space and then do that for a bunch of points in space. For example, a square centimeter wide piece of cortex so that someone could actually see something. And what we now know is that yes, we can do that. So essentially, if we put a 16 micron wide LED on the surface of the cortex, we have determined that we get a 30 micron wide spot one millimeter down due to scatter. And that's quite a lot of scatter, but it's not a deal killer. And we would have more scatter, except that we determined the photoreceptors themselves are only so sensitive. The scatter actually goes much farther, but the scatter doesn't matter unless it actually activates the receptors themselves and causes activity in the neurons. So what we've determined is that the field that actually is stimulated enough by the surface projection of the video projector for a 16 micron spot on the surface of the cortex is roughly 10 times smaller than our threshold. So bottom line is we can easily stimulate an area of cortex that's less than 500 microns wide. We now know we have the scientific ability to stimulate the left and the right on and off channels of a given point in space in perfect isolation from each other. And in fact, we have so much extra play area to do this with, we're confident we can do it without error. And we also know we can add extra spots, extra LEDs in order to control the light level. And so that means we should be able to get better than 8-bit brightness control in on and off left and right, which is roughly the same as your computer monitor, is what we call an 8-bit computer monitor. So we'll be able to get lots of different levels of brightness, and we should be able to do it with perfect acuity when the system works. So from a theoretical point of view, we're in good shape to make this work. The thing I'm confused about is in reading the paper and reading about the different techniques, and you talked about ultra-wide field microscopy and several other techniques that were in there, like the one where you put the two dyes in the same cell so you can measure two different things at the same time. So it's my non-professional impression was that that was because you were going to be measuring what the cells in the brain were doing. Right. But now we're talking about sending a signal to the cells in the brain. You're right. There's this other aspect to it. So that's how we're going to stimulate the cells, and that's what will cause vision. But there's two problems that we have. First off, how do we know where the on and the off and the left and the right points are in the brain of an individual person? How do we map it? I know that most of you are committed to lifelong learning. That's why I'm enthusiastic about our sponsor, The Great Courses Plus, which is founded on the idea that learning should be accessible to everyone. With The Great Courses Plus, you can stream lectures from the world's leading teachers and learn about an unlimited number of subjects. You get college-level teaching and learning without tuition or the pressure of homework. You can watch or listen at any time. The videos are great, but I particularly enjoy being able to stream the audio-only version to my phone. This month, I'm recommending cognitive behavioral therapy, techniques for retraining your brain. CBT is a well-validated method for dealing with a wide variety of challenges, including anxiety, depression, and even managing chronic pain. 
I particularly enjoyed the lecture about getting a good night's sleep. So we have a special offer to unlock this world of knowledge. All you have to do is go to thegreatcoursesplus.com forward slash ginger, and you can get three months for only $30. That's only $10 a month. It's a limited time offer, so go as soon as possible to thegreatcoursesplus.com forward slash ginger, G-I-N-G-E-R. There's two problems that we have. First off, how do we know where the on and the off and the left and the right points are in the brain of an individual person? How do we map it? The brain itself, everywhere in the brain, every single, whether it's vision or not, has been mapped by stimulating that area and seeing what happens. So in the visual system, you actually show the patient light in their eyes and you can record neurons from their brain firing. And so you know where in the brain is that retinotopic area stimulated. If your patient's blind, you can't do that. Their eyes don't work. So you can't do what we call a forward model. You can't stimulate the visual system to see how it's mapped in the brain. And so we had to develop methods to inversely model the brain. To do that, we have to stimulate the brain and then we have to read it out. So we have to see how the brain reacts to our optogenetic stimulation. And so that's how we figure out where we are and how these different neurons that we're stimulating are related to each other. Are they on? Are they off? Are they on and off to the same position and they cancel each other out? Are they left versus right, et cetera? So we had to figure out a, a method, an algorithm to prosthetically stimulate the neurons and read them out in order to create the mappings of on, off, left, and right in a blind person. That's the most important reason why we have to read out these neurons. And a second issue is that We don't know from moment to moment how much power to use because the brain is constantly changing its state. And that's something that we've learned from other prosthetics fields, that you have to have a real-time control theory-driven system where you stimulate the brain with electrodes or whatever. You have to read out what's actually happening in order to know you're using enough power because Say you're using your visual system inside versus outside. Well, there's different light levels in the background. That's going to affect how much power you have to use in order to get a signal that can be seen by your visual system prosthetically. Or it'll matter if you're sleepy or not, or whether you've had caffeine or not, or whether you're paying attention or not. All of these different things affect the way that you see in real vision, and your real visual cortex has feedback from upper visual areas that come back and tell it how to change its sensitivity in order to read the input from the retina and to optimize your vision. Well, we don't have that feedback in our system. We don't know what the rest of the brain is doing. All we can do is see what the neurons are in the visual cortex are doing if we record for them. So the problem is this. To record neurons in the visual cortex, you need what's called a wide-field two-photon microscope. It's a very large machine. People are trying to develop miniature ones, but even those will be very, very large. My two-photon microscope that I'm using for these experiments, for example, to test these techniques is half the size of a bedroom. It's very large. It's a huge laser that's the size of two bread boxes. And the microscope itself, it has to be large enough to fit animals underneath it so you can look into their brains, et cetera. 
it all sits on a one-ton table that floats on air so that you minimize motion because you can see vibrations in the floor that are less than a micron. So a truck driving by your building is something you can see in your microscope unless you isolate it. So it's problematic, very large microscope. You can't put it in someone's head. So we had to develop new techniques to be able to read out these neurons inside the brain while we're video stimulating them in such a way that we didn't need a microscope. So I told you we made the LGN cells into photoreceptors and we take the neurons of the brain and we fill them with a different type of gene therapy that makes them blink like fireflies. So these are just bioluminescent molecules. They're not photosensitive, but they're photoemitting. They're luminant. Literally, it's the same kind of process you'll see in fireflies. Actually, these genes come out of jellyfish and they've been developed over decades by other biologists for fluorescence microscopy. But now, what happens is when you see a firefly blink, it's because the firefly's neurons, calcium flowed into them, and through these chemical reactions, cause these neurons to emit light. And so that's what we're doing now is we take all of the neurons in our visual cortex that we're trying to stimulate, and we give them a stochastic array of colors called brainbow, but this is now bioluminescent brainbow. So they light up in different colors, and now we can read out those neurons using a color camera. And the reason this works, it normally wouldn't work to use a camera to read out these neurons because you need to see the neuron to know which one's firing. But because they're all randomly colored, this is a different kind of recording system in which we can use their color itself to determine which cell is firing. So let's say we have five to 10,000 different colors. Any phone camera can see 16 million colors, right? So there's no problem. The technology is very small, very cheap, and very easy to just read out thousands of different colors. And then you can imagine at a given point in space, if orange number 2342 is blinking on and off, you know it's the same cell because all the different neurons are different colors, or at least there's thousands and thousands of different colors, and the likelihood that there's two cells at the same point with exactly the same color is very low. So we now had to develop this spatiochromatic mapping system that uses a standard phone camera to read it out. And so our implant that we're developing not only is a video projector made out of an LED array, but it's a camera that reads the color output of the cells so that we can keep our system calibrated for power and we can also map the cortex in order to know where to stimulate in order to for our video projector to work. If you were going to, I guess this is going to be tested in the monkeys or is being tested in the monkeys, where exactly do you put the implant? Right, over the primary visual cortex. So the idea is we inject the LGN with the optogenes. Then the LGN cells become photoreceptors, including in their boutons into the primary visual cortex at the back of the head. The implant lies over the cortex underneath the bone and will stimulate those LGN inputs, which causes the cells in the cortex, which we've now filled with bioluminescent brainbow, will now blink in their fire burst of colors as they respond to the prosthetic inputs. And we can now read that out and we can change the power levels as necessary. And we can also know through our, our mapping algorithm where the on and the off and the left or the right are for each point in space. Okay, I'm going to have to ask a really stupid question. 
I still don't exactly understand how the signal is going to get to the LGN. I mean, the thalamus is deep in the brain, right? Right, exactly. It's not going to get to the LGN. It's going to get to the boutons that come from the LGN. So the neurons are made up of cell bodies, and they have an axon, which is a wire that comes from them. And you can think if you had a million of those neurons in the eye, and their axons made a bundle, that's exactly what we call the optic nerve. The optic nerve is a bunch of axons coming from the eye to the LGN, actually. And then the LGN itself is a bunch of cell bodies, and they send neurons called the optic radiation, which is the white part in the middle of the brain. They send their optic radiations to the primary visual cortex, and they make what's called boutons, which are little mechanisms at the end of those wires that send electrochemical signals out to the neurons of the primary visual cortex. And it's through boutons that axons talk to the next neuron. The boutons lie on the cell bodies or the dendrites of the next neuron and send those signals in through the bouton. Now, our injection in the LGN will cause the LGN cells to actually start making photoreceptors, the optogenetic photoreceptors in their cell membranes, even in their boutons, okay, everywhere in the neuron. So their boutons will actually be photosensitive directly, and we will stimulate those boutons directly with our video projector. And then at the same time, then that's going to stimulate V1. That's right. So you can think of it this way. In normal vision, the job of the cell bodies in the LGN, their only job is to send signals to stimulate those boutons that are in V1. That's what they're for. We're just obviating the whole cell body issue. We're just stimulating the, the boutons directly. That is really wild, Steve. <laughs> Who really thought of that? I guess it was a lot of brainstorming, huh? The idea to stimulate boutons was done previous to our lab. So it was done, um, I'm blanking on the name of the people, but it was done in rodents before. So we didn't come up with that idea. We just lifted it and we're using it now in our monkey stuff to accomplish this project. So you can think of this project as, I mean, we, we developed a few new things for this, but really this project, I see it more as the outcome of a lot of different labs work. And we're just kind of putting it all together in one tidy little package to try and do something that the visual community really has been wanting to do since its inception, which is to restore blindness. I understand the big picture of if we're trying to get a um, visual prosthesis, but for the sake of my listeners to understand, you know, kind of how the overall system works in terms of things get developed, say, in a rodent, and then you need to take them to a primate, that's a pretty common path, right? Yeah, that's not the path we're taking, but this is, I mean, I guess in the sense of the boutons being developed... The bouton stimulation idea was done in rodents before this, yes. So it's very common in biomedicine for early basic research to be done in rodents, but that research is meant to go into a human. It almost always goes through a monkey on the way to a human. Because their their brains are more like ours. Very much so. That's exactly it. And in fact, some research can't be done in rodents. It has to be done starting in monkeys because rodents, monkeys are primates and primates have specialized things. So if you want to do certain things and study even very basic research of certain things about how humans work, 
you have to do it in, in a monkey. And one of those things is foveal vision. So primates are the only, only mammals with foveas. And so if we're really gonna understand how to restore this very special piece of vision that only we have, it has to be in primates. Also, you've got to develop something that's not going to kill the primate because then it probably won't kill us. <laughs> a certain very important aspect of this, whether we did this initially in rodents and then moved it to humans, it has to go through monkeys first because we're talking about a brain implant that's restoring vision. And we have to do what we call preclinical testing. So the FDA is never going to allow us to just put this in humans from a mouse. So we, we have to actually do a lot of testing and preclinical testing to show that monkeys can survive and you know function with these things for years without mishap. There's inevitably going to be certain types of problems that you have to overcome in this type of research because we don't know a lot. So we do, we do this kind of preclinical testing. So part of what we're doing now is we're shortcutting in a sense some of the preclinical testing work by doing the original work in monkeys because we have to do it in monkeys because it's foveal work anyway. And because of that, we're discovering a lot of things that are relevant to monkey vision that wouldn't be, have been found in rodents, which we were going to have to find out anyway because it, it has to be solved before we put it in a human. So, Steve, what principles should a non-scientist keep in mind when reading media accounts about optogenetic research? Because we see that quite a bit. I think the main thing to think about it is it's basically just turning the neurons into photoreceptors. And then you can imagine that if the whole brain was photosensitive, you could now control it with light. Now, the way it's typically used as a therapy is the idea is you go to some part of the brain that has some deficiency or some overactivity, possibly, and you fill it with optogenes that are either excitatory or inhibitory. And then you put a fiber optic down to that area. And from the surface of the head, you stimulate that region by turning on an LED and the photons travel down the fiber optic and cause those neurons to be either activated or suppressed. Typically, it's actually suppression that they're looking for. So to stop a seizure, for example, or to stop depression or to stop hunger or that kind of behavior modification or to suppress overactivity is a very common mode that people are seeking to use in humans. So what about if a student is listening and says, this sounds like a really interesting field to get into, what kind of advice would you have for them? Well, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a great field. It's a super fun time. It's funny because I've, I've spoken to grad students and to the extent I kind of felt this way myself when I first started. And the, the feeling was like envision that all the low hanging fruit have been picked and now you should go into something else because there's not much left here. That's just so crazy wrong. I can tell you, I mean, we just learned about the on and off left and right organization of the impus of the LGN, and we only know it for vision into the primary visual cortex. That's it. So the idea that with all the low-hanging fruits discovered is crazy. We have so much to learn. And in vision, I get the feeling that we're now have enough of a structure beneath us that we can really ask some of the most interesting questions without having to to study some of the most very basic functional questions before we get to the interesting ones. We can really get at cognition, for example. We can really get at certain aspects of brain function that you simply can't in the olfactory system, for example, because we just don't know how olfaction works and how it's processed at the most basic level in a lot of ways. 
Whereas we do know that now in vision and we can just move forward from there. So my advice, if you're interested in getting into, into visual neuroscience is first off to make sure, and this is critical, that you learn to do programming. The biggest deficit we see in people trying to come into the field is they don't realize that they're going to be doing a lot of programming either for visual stimuli or for data analysis. And it's the single most important tool for anybody going into physiology in any field. So that's the most important thing is you have to become essentially, to some extent, a computer engineer and do everything that's involved with getting that done. That'll really help you coming into That's my biggest piece of advice. Do you think that people need to do undergraduate neuroscience or would it make more sense to say, do something like engineering or computer science and then, and then go to grad school in neuroscience? I think it's actually, you can go in either way. I would, have, I would have agreed with you completely, say 10 years ago. I think getting an engineering degree so that you have the chops to do stuff independently and then come learn the science as a grad student which is more or less where you do it anyway. For example, I mean, when people come to my lab to work with monkeys, nobody ever has had monkey experience before, right? They might've had mouse experience in college, but there's no way they had monkey experience. It just can't happen. So everybody comes to my lab entry level in terms of what they're learning. But I do think it's possible to get a grounding. Undergraduate education is quite sophisticated now in neuroscience. It's roughly equivalent now to what I was learning as a grad student when I was a grad student. And so I think it's possible for you to learn how to think pretty well as a neuroscientist as an undergraduate now, and then to become a bioengineer at a PhD level. I don't know that that's worse. Let me put it that way. I think that it is possible to get a bioengineering degree. In bioengineering, a PhD is really only good for staying in academia. It doesn't get you jobs at it's really a master's in bioengineering will get you a job, not a PhD. If you want to work for Google or want to work for Medtronics or something, it's, it's the master's you want to get that job. A PhD is really more about discovery. And in engineering, in a sense, engineers never want to discover anything. They just want to <laughs> take what physicists and other people have already discovered and use it to build something really good and safe and cheap, et cetera. So a PhD in bioengineering is developing new biomedical engineering techniques and things like that. And it's really more of an academic enterprise. And so if you're planning on going into academic research, I think either path might be fine. But I certainly think that somewhere in the education a very strong background in engineering is a huge advantage, let me put it that way. And things certainly have come a long way. When I was a grad student, <laughs> before I went to medical school, I think it was around 78, 79. I mean, I think things were still at the, let's take a recording from an aplesia. <laughs> yeah. Giant glass microelectrodes. <laughs> right. So... What else would you like to share before we close? Well, I think the, the basic idea is this, is that we really think it's possible to restore vision. And again, vision is the platform for everything else in a sense, and at least it historically has been. It won't always necessarily be this way, but it is right now. Because we now know that the inputs from the LGN to the primary cortex are very simple, on and off, left and right, and that's basically the end of it. And there may be more to it in the fine details, but that more or less explains virtually everything that we need to know to restore vision at the highest attainable acuity. So what you want to do is you want to be able to stimulate 
the on and the off and the left and the right. And it's actually quite simple. You need a camera and you need a video projector. And this actually should be true for every other cortical system too. Now, it might be that, that thalamic inputs to other cortical areas or outputs from cortical areas to other places aren't quite so simple. It's possible. But, you know, vision is one of the most complicated senses we have. It's certainly the most important sense we have. And so the idea that everywhere else is going to be grossly different, I doubt it. I bet it's going to be more or less very similar. And it might be that this entire system, the observe, the system, the optogenetic brain system that we're developing, which we call observe, we think that this system might generalize to other pieces of cortex as well that are non-visual, that are cognitive, that are auditory. And it might be that the same general idea, a video projector stimulating optogenetically input cells, reading out bioluminescent output with a phone camera, might be a general system for doing all sorts of things. What I'd like to see is that this type of system is explored to its fullest extent because I think it's relatively cheap and easy, and we now have the technology to do it all. We can do everything I've talked about today right now. It's just no one's done it. So it just needs basically warm bodies to go do it, and there's not a lot of deep thinking about it. It's mostly just the work. That's really what I want to impress upon people. People interested in going into neuroscience, just with this one technique, there might be decades of work ahead of us to do all sorts of great things and to help people. But also, I think building prosthetics could be much better than it's been. And people have been putting electrodes in people's brains now to make prosthetics for decades. But Ginny, how many different robot wheelchairs have you seen with quadriplegics in them at the shopping center? using their robot arm to shop on the, off the shelf. How many of them are driving a car? No. You haven't seen it, even though it's been happening for decades. And the reason is because electrodes just aren't good enough. It's really, we need the precision of optogenetics where we don't get unwanted targets like inhibitory cells and mixing on and off channels. Now that that technique exists, we think we can get precision activation without unwanted targets using relatively off-the-shelf simple technology that exists right now, and we should be able to get much better precision that would make that kind of thing possible. So that's really what I want to impress upon people is that this is not a niche, I don't believe, technology that'll have one trick. I see it as being the basis for a lot of different things. That's really exciting. So where can listeners go to learn more about your work? I have a website, macnic.neurocorrelate.com. The NIH director has talked about the Observe project in his blog in August of 2019. But mostly, if you go to my website, you can keep up to date with what we're doing in the lab and with our funding possibilities. And if you're interested in working with us, then you can contact me from there as well. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to share this with us today. And I hope you'll also give my regards to Susanna. I certainly will. And hopefully we will see each other face-to-face -face again soon. I'd like that, Ginny. Thanks for having me. First, I want to thank Dr. Stephen Macknick for taking the time to talk with me about his fascinating work. 
As Dr. Macknick observed, the basic idea of his project is pretty straightforward. He's trying to create a new kind of prosthetic vision, one that does not involve any electrodes. The project involves using optogenetics to turn certain cells in the thalamus into photoreceptors and then to project light onto those neurons in a way that replaces the input from the optic nerve. This approach is based on a discovery that was published by Alonzo and Fitzpatrick in Nature in 2016. The key discovery was about how the information is organized when it goes from the LGN to the cortex. Every point in the visual field is represented by only four pieces of information, on, off, left, and right. This means the signal is not as complex as was previously imagined. It also turns out that the area of the visual cortex that corresponds to the fovea is about one millimeter square, which is small enough to try to project a light signal onto. The project has faced many technical challenges, including the need to monitor what the visual cortex is doing in response to these inputs. This involves utilizing photoluminescence to monitor the response of the visual cortex. Macknick emphasized that his lab has adopted many techniques developed by others. Conversely, I can imagine that once his techniques are perfected, other scientists will use them in creative ways. That's one reason why I wanted to share this work with you, even though it's highly technical. Since most of you are not scientists, I want to give you a better sense of how science works. A key principle that sets basic science apart from engineering is that, in general, new tools are freely shared. In fact, many Nobel Prizes are awarded to people who develop techniques that help advance knowledge. One other point that stands out for me is Dr. Macknick's advice for those of you who are interested in vision research. He said that neuroscientists working in vision need to have computer programming skills. He also said a background in engineering is a huge advantage. If you want to learn more about Dr. Macknick's work, I have included links to his lab and the key papers in the show notes on my website at brainsciencepodcast.com. The episode transcript will also contain links to the papers that he mentioned. You may also enjoy the link to the YouTube video that Dr. Macknick produced for the NIH website. You might find this especially helpful if you're still a little fuzzy about how the prosthesis is supposed to work. The next episode of Brain Science will feature Dr. Stanislav Dahan talking about his brand new book, How We Learn, why Brains Learn Better Than Any Machine for Now. This episode should be of special interest to parents and teachers, but it will be appropriate for everyone. I mentioned that you can get complete show notes and episode transcripts at brainsciencepodcast.com. While you're there, be sure to sign up for the free newsletter so that you can get show notes automatically. I'd love to hear what you think about the show and even about this episode. You can send me email at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com, voice feedback at speakpipe.com forward slash Doc Artemis, and you can post on our Facebook fan page. 
I want to thank those of you who support the show financially. Please go to brainsonspodcast.com forward slash donations to learn more about what you can do to help. December 2019 was the 14th anniversary of brain science. And in my year-end review, I mentioned that my goal for 2020 was to take brain science to the next level. Going back to two shows per month is only the first step. This spring, I'll be releasing an updated version of the book I published back in 2012 called Are You Sure? The Unconscious Origins of Certainty. I'll tell you more about that next episode. I've also started working on a longer, completely original book that I hope to publish by the end of 2020. My goal is to reach people who don't necessarily listen to podcasts because I strongly believe that understanding how our brains work is important to being good citizens in the complex world of the 21st century. That's why I appreciate it so much when you share the podcast with others. Because this month has five Fridays, it will be three weeks until the next episode. So I want to encourage you to listen to this month's episode of Books and Ideas. It's an interview with astronomer Brian Keating talking about his book, Losing the Nobel Prize, a story of cosmology, ambition, and the perils of science's highest honor. You can find that at booksandideas.com or in your favorite podcasting app. Thanks again for listening. I look forward to talking with you again very soon. Brain Science is copyright 2020 to Virginia Campbell, MD. You can share this audio with others, but for any other uses or derivatives, please email me at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. The theme music for Brain Science is Mindfire, written and performed by Tony Catraccia. You can find his work at syncopationnow.com.